0: Uh, we're going to be going through the book of Acts together as a church. I was praying uh, and seeking the Lord, trying to figure out where in the Bible uh, He was leading us as a body to discover, to 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 search through, and to see uh, what He has uh, what He has for us. And since we as a church are going through a process of figuring out what our mission statement is, going through a process of figuring out our vision and where we're going as a church, we're going we're, what kind of church we're going to be, what kind of church body uh, we're going to be. As we are following along in that process and and heading along in that process, uh, the Lord really impressed upon me what better place to go in Scripture than to go back to the early church, than to go back to the the formation and the expansion of the church in its very early days. And so we'll be walking through the book of Acts together starting this week. Uh, And the book of Acts, if you notice, is a really long book, Uh, so we would be in it for a really long time if we went just straight through um, but what we're going to see in a little bit uh, in Acts 1.8, uh, that verse kind of uh, functions as an outline for the whole book of Acts. You have uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. That's kind of a, a, an outline for the whole book of Acts. So what we're going to do as a church is we're going to spend the next 11 weeks looking through the Jerusalem part of the book of Acts. And then we'll take a short break, go through some other things, and then come back to it, uh, pick it back up in a little bit. But So for the next 11 weeks, we'll be going through Jerusalem, two Jerusalem. And what we're going to see over the next 11 weeks is the formation of the church and its expansion really early on. We're going to see what happens when the Holy Spirit mobilizes a church in a city. We're going to see God powerfully move and begin to take over the city of Jerusalem in the early days of the church. So I'm excited about it. I think it's timely for us as a body of believers, and so I'm ready to dig into Acts. Uh, So this morning, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are some in front of you. Um, The words will also be on the screen. We're going to be in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he, uh, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem to the mount called Ol- from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath-day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, all of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Let me pray for us this morning, and we're going to get into the text. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have formed and brought together the church, I thank you that you have created this entity in which all of us as believers can come together as one. Father, I thank you for creating this local church. I thank you that Freedom Fellowship here exists as a a local body of believers. God, I pray that we would be worthy of that title, that we would live in a manner worthy of that title, only by your grace. God, I pray this morning that in your word we would we would see you and how you function and how you move through the church, God, and I pray that you would move us, that you would mold us and shape us into your image, not just individually, but as a body, and that you would send us out, you would motivate and move us to do the things that you have called us to do. Give us eyes to see what you have for us in your word, and give us a heart and feet and hands that are ready to do it. We love you and praise you, and is in the precious, holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So Acts chapter 1, the first three verses function as this uh, kind of introduction to the whole book of Acts. It's, it's background material that you and I are going to need to know as we get into the text. So, so it starts out at the beginning. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do or teach. So we need to know the, the author. Who, who wrote the book of Acts? Who is this I that's speaking? And what is this first book? Well, the book of Acts is the sequel to the book of Luke. The book of Acts was written by this guy who's a physician. Uh, he is a, he's a doctor, but he's also a, uh, an incredible historian. Uh, he composed the book of Luke after uh, after uh, In the days of the early church, he was trying to figure out an exact account of what happened uh, in Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. So He was compiling all of that information. He was getting all of the written record, uh, conducting interviews, talking to the people who were eyewitnesses. And he was gathering this really uh, succinct, really uh, descriptive account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's what we have in the book of Luke, compiled by uh, compiled by Luke, and honestly, the work of Luke, that book, is considered by historians uh, as one of the best work of history uh, available, uh, he, not just in content, but, but the actual style of writing is incredible. Luke is a great historian, uh, and we have access to what he wrote in the book of Luke, and so he compiled that book uh, about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and then he put together the second work, the sequel, uh, called the book of Acts. Uh, in which he wrote and compiled and got together all uh, some some things that he experienced, some things that he didn't, but all of these things that happened in the early days of the church. Uh, And and he put them all together, and he says, I wrote this for you, O Theophilus. And uh, there's a lot of ink spilled about who Theophilus is. Uh, Translated, that means lover of God. Uh, And uh, so there's a lot of ink spilled about who this guy is. I don't think it it is ultimately all that important for us. Um, More than likely, uh, what based on the way that books were written in those days, uh, writing a book was really expensive. It required a lot of uh, upfront money uh, and time to fund the endeavor. Uh, And so most authors had benefactors, people that would pay for the work and commission it being done. And so more than likely, Luke was uh, shouting out uh, his benefactor. He was kind of, it's it's a book put together, not a letter, but it's a book put together for a wide audience. But he's kind of shouting out uh, the guy who, uh, giving a shout out to the guy who funded the the operation there at the beginning. And so we uh, we can read this book, and we understand it, uh, as a book for a wide audience to people who maybe didn't experience the early days of the church. And people who were interested in it, people who who uh, could benefit from it, like us, uh, but did not personally experience the early days of, of the church. And he put them together uh, for us. And what we see here in... Uh, verses 1 through 3, is that there's a, a link between books 1 and 2. right? There's a link between Luke and Acts. He says he wrote, With all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And he doesn't go into much more detail about Jesus. The, uh, Luke just kind of that that's kind of the end of his detail that he gives about the life, death and resurrection of Jesus here in the book of Acts because what the book of Acts assumes is that you've already read Luke what the book of Acts assumes is that you is that you already understand the person and work of Jesus Christ. You already understand who Jesus was and what he taught, you already know about his death and you already understand his resurrection. That's already assumed uh, in the book of Acts, that you know that, that you have understood that. Because the whole book of Acts, everything that happens with the early church doesn't happen if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead. Like the whole formation of the church doesn't happen if there is not a resurrected Jesus. And the expansion of the church, the, the rapid expansion from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth doesn't happen if the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus wasn't real. And so Luke already assumes that you have read the book of Luke and understood all that Jesus taught and all that he did specifically, that you understand that he died for our sins and he rose again. Because everything that happens in the book of Acts assumes that that is true. Everything that happens in the book of Acts is predicated on a risen Jesus. So this morning, if you do not understand that, if you have never come to know a risen Savior, if you've never understood what Jesus taught or that he died for your sins or that he rose again from the grave, then this morning I invite you uh, this week to read the book of Luke along with some other Gospels, but even this morning at the end of the service, we're going to have an opportunity for you to come talk to me about what what the life, death, and and resurrection of Jesus means. Because if you do not know Jesus, the entire book of Acts is, is useless for you. Uh, If you do not know Jesus, then you're not going to be part of the church, and so the formation and expansion of the church has no impact on you directly. Uh, So this morning, we have to all be on the same page about who Jesus is, that he died for our sins, that he rose again from the grave, because that's assumed in the book of Acts. But then we get into the actual story. After the introduction, after tying us back to the book of Luke and, and, and pointing us back to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he begins the actual story in the book of Acts, and he picks it up uh, in verse 4 with a little bit of overlap with how he ended the book of Luke. He says, While staying with them, he ordered them, uh, the disciples, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the whole book of Acts begins with this one moment of waiting. It begins with, with a command from Jesus to his disciples to wait. That's probably not how you would expect a book about the rapid expansion of the church to begin. right? That's probably not how you would expect a book that's all about the church growing and expanding to the ends of the earth. Uh, you probably wouldn't expect it to begin with, hey, you guys wait here. You, you guys don't do anything. Just pause and wait. When I was growing up uh, in, in seventh grade, uh, that was the first time that I really... 100% knew that God was calling me to pastor, that he was calling me to preach. And so when, when I knew that with, with full confidence, when I knew that uh, with, without any question in my mind, I really wanted to preach. I started uh, meeting with my, my middle school pastor uh, every week, and I was like, I, I want to preach. That's what God has called me to do. That's what God has gifted me, and I want to preach. And my middle school pastor wisely told me no. <laughs> right? He wisely told me that in seventh grade, uh, early in this calling, uh, that, that there's a lot of growing that need to happen. Right? There's a lot of uh, growth that needed to happen just in my own life to even make sense while preaching. And so, so he told me, wait. I began to meet with him every week uh, for, for two years before preaching my first sermon. And, and that whole time was growing, that whole time was learning and, and, and becoming the person that I, I needed to be to preach. And, and becoming the person uh, with the skill set that I needed to open up the Word of God and to talk about what it means for my life. And honestly, I probably should have waited longer. Um, that first sermon was terrible. But uh, but it, there was that period of waiting, uh, of of pausing and, and growing in order to accomplish what God had called me to do. The disciples faced the same thing. At just this moment, Jesus told them, uh, You know, He's just risen from the dead. They are pumped. They're excited. They're ready for the kingdom of God to come. I told you in the book of Luke, we talked about this uh, several weeks ago. In the book of Luke, all of the hopes and the dreams that the disciples had were placed upon Jesus. They viewed him as the Messiah, the Lord, the King, the one who would do away with the enemies of God, the one who would restore the world. They viewed this Jesus as that guy, and he had just risen from the dead. And and so they were excited. They were ready. And Jesus tells them, wait. Wait in Jerusalem. But what does he tell them specifically to wait for? It says in verse uh, verse 5, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. See, they weren't ready to be the people that God had called them to be, and they weren't ready to do the things that God had called them to do because they weren't baptized by the Holy Spirit yet. So Jesus tells them to wait because in order for them to be the church, in order for them to do the work that God had called the church to do, they needed to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. They needed the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon them. Now, if you're the disciples, this promise excites you. And it should excite every single one of us, because the thing is, this has never happened before in the history of the world. If we look back in the Old Testament, there was not a people who had the Holy Spirit poured out upon them permanently. right? If we look back in the Old Testament, there were individuals who may have been, may have been given the Holy Spirit for a time, for a purpose. So we had Moses... Uh, who is probably the strongest example of someone who received the Holy Spirit. We had the prophets who had the Holy Spirit come upon them to proclaim and to preach prophecies. We had uh, King Saul had the Holy Spirit put upon him uh, until he rebelled against God and God took it away from him again. Uh, and then we have King David who had the Holy Spirit poured out upon him. But even King David, after he sinned, uh, he cries out to God and begs him not to take the Holy Spirit away from him because he knows that he could end up like Saul with the Holy Spirit being ripped from him. And so we see people time and again in the Old Testament be given the Holy Spirit for a particular purpose, for a particular time. Uh, and those people ha- are, are move and act powerfully in the Old Testament. But the Israelites as a whole didn't receive the Holy Spirit. And no other people in the history of the world had ever received the Holy Spirit. But in Isaiah 44 and in Joel chapter 2, God promises to pour out his Spirit upon his people. God promises to give His people the Holy Spirit and to to pour it out upon them. All of His people, all of the time. And that is something that's brand new. That is something that has never happened in the history of the world. For God's people to receive the Holy Spirit and to have the full power of God and dwell them and to empower them to do what he's called them to do and to, to be the people that he's called them to be. And that promise, the reason this is so exciting for the, for the disciples is that promise is directly tied to the end times. That in the book of Isaiah and in the book of, of Joel, when it's brought up, it is directly tied to the end of days, when, when God returns the world to the way it's supposed to be in Genesis 1, when he gets rid of the enemies of God, when he establishes and restores the kingdom of God in its full portion. In those days, he pours out his Spirit upon his people. And so, if you're the disciples, you know that you're getting the Holy Spirit soon, it's going to be poured out upon you soon, you think that this is it, that this is the... Return of the kingdom of Israel. That this is all of God's enemies are going to be wiped away. That all of God's enemies are going to be done away with. All sin and death will be gone. And this is it. You're going to live in a Genesis 1 reality because the Spirit of God is coming. And it's going to be poured out upon you. So they are pumped. It'd be very similar in our minds if I said, hey, go home and wait for Jesus to come back. It'll only be a short few days. Like you will be thrilled. That's what they're feeling because they know the Holy Spirit is coming, and they have directly tied that to to the moment when Jesus comes back, and and restores the kingdom uh, to Israel, which is why we get verse six. When they had come together, they asked him, "Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel?" So they're gathered on this mountain. Jesus is in front of them, and They're excited because the risen Messiah is before them. The Holy Spirit is coming and they understand that the Holy Spirit is going to let them and make them the people that they're supposed to be. They understand that work of the Holy Spirit, that he's going to come upon them and he's going to begin and shape them and mold them into the people of God. He's going to begin to, to change their hearts. He's going to begin to convict them of sin. He's going to begin to mold them and shape them into the people that they're supposed to be. And that's their full extent of what the Holy Spirit is going to do. That's all they think he's going to do is to make them the people of God because they have the king in front of them. They have the, the Messiah in front of them. He's going to restore the kingdom. They're not going to have to deal with sin and death. They're not going to have to deal with the enemies of God. The Messiah is in front of them, and they're going to have the full power of the Holy Spirit to change them and mold them into the people of God. And so they're asking Jesus, is, is it now? Is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> is that... <laughs> For those of you on podcast, we just had a uh, a musical interruption, which is fantastic. Um, <laughs> but they're celebrating the fact that uh that Jesus is probably going to restore the kingdom right now. That's what they think. So they ask him, this is it, right? This is the moment. And in their mind specifically, they're they're mad at Rome. They're like, this is the moment you're gonna kick off Rome. And you're going to establish the kingdom of Israel, right? This is the moment you're going to restore the world. This is it. Jesus says, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So he said, They're excited. They're pumped. They think this might be it. And Jesus says, it's not your job to know when that's going to happen. It's not your job to decide when the kingdom gets restored. It's, your, it's not your job to decide when God fixes the world, when he does away with his enemies and restores the world back to Genesis 1. It's not your job to know when that is. But he doesn't just tell the disciples to sit down because it's not their job. What he does is he shows them what their job is. We see in verse 8 you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So it's not your job to know when the kingdom is going to be restored. It's not your job to know when the world is going to end. It's not your job to know when the enemies of God will be done away with. But it is your job in the meantime to be my witnesses. Because until that day comes, until the day comes when when the, the world is restored to Genesis 1, in the meantime, it is your job to be my witnesses. And he points out again the Holy Spirit in verse 8. And we see the Holy Spirit in verse 5. We see the Holy Spirit again in verse 80. He says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So not only does the Holy Spirit train you and equip you to be the people God has called you to be, he sends you out and mobilizes you to do the tasks that God has called you to do. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are to mobilize and to be a people that reach lost people with the gospel. And that's what he says. A lot of times we'll take this verse and we'll point it, uh, point it to us, and we'll say, we need, to, we need to reach Jerusalem, which is our city, we need to reach Judea and Samaria, and we say, well, I guess that's our state, and maybe our country, and then the ends of the earth. And so we kind of point ourselves uh, and put ourselves directly in this passage. But we, we are the ends of the earth in this passage. Like the gospel has made its way to us. The calling on our life is to be people who reach the world with the gospel, Is to be people who are witnesses for Christ in the meantime. So many times, we as a church, especially as Baptist churches, uh, we like to do things our own, right? We like to do things of our own will, of our own power. We like to do things that we can accomplish. We like to, to do things that, that we feel like we have the ability to do. And so, uh, so we do things on our own abilities and of our own volition. But the disciples had to wait to receive the Holy Spirit because they couldn't be the people of God and they couldn't do the things that God had called them to be until the Holy Spirit came and empowered them to do that. And so if we're going to do the work that God has called us to do, if we're going to be the church that that witnesses and reaches lost people with the gospel, we have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that. We have to go out, not of our own will, not of our own Passions, not of our own desires, but empowered by the Holy Spirit to go reach lost people with the gospel. That we, as a church, are not just individuals who have been brought together to to check off a box and join a country club. That we, as a church, have been brought together and empowered by the Holy Spirit to go reach people with the gospel. So he says in uh, verses 7 and 8, That it's not the church's job, it's not his disciples' job to know when the end will come. It's their job to go and to be witnesses of Christ. To go make the name of Jesus famous in the world. And then in verse 9, this crazy moment happens. Because right as he finishes saying this, again, put yourself in the minds of the disciples. You're kind of grappling with what Jesus has just said. You understand now that there is this mean time, that there's, there's this middle time between uh, Jesus' resurrection and when the world is going to be restored. You're kind of grappling with that. Uh, and Jesus uh, just gives you that information. And then in verse 9, uh, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So if you're the disciples, you are totally unprepared for this. I mean, I I guess anybody in the world is totally unprepared for somebody right in front of them to just lift up into the sky and get covered by a cloud. None of us are ready for that. But their worldview, what they were expecting, uh, did not include that at all. Because they think that that the Messiah is right in front of them. The time must be really soon that the kingdom of God is coming and the world is going to be restored. They think it's, it's right around the corner that Genesis 1 is going to come and they're just going to live it up. And they're going to to reign and rule and live for all of eternity. That's what they're expecting. And Jesus says, there is a meantime. And in the meantime, it's your job to reach lost people with the gospel. It's your job to be my witnesses. And then he leaves. And not, I mean, if he walked out, that suggests that he'll be right back. But he literally takes off, like he launches, like a rocket. And that doesn't suggest a really quick return. Right, that doesn't suggest that he's just going to turn right back around. Right, our brains have no ability to comprehend that mode of transportation, and uh, and so we and the disciples at that time they look at that uh, incredible moment from Jesus and know that there's they're in the meantime. They know that that they're in this middle period between the resurrection of Jesus and the day. That Jesus will come back and restore the world. And that's why uh, two men, uh, angels, uh, described as two men in white robes, show up beside them. And it says in verse 11, they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This is one of those questions in the Bible that I think is obvious to answer, right? Like, why, why are you guys looking up? <laughs> like, Jesus <laughs> why, uh, is there. <laughs> he just went up. Uh, but he, they're making a bigger point um, than just this really sarcastic question. Why are you looking up? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So he's, there, there's this incredible promise here that, that Jesus is going to come back, that there is going to be a day when the world is restored to Genesis 1. There is going to be a day when the kingdom will be restored to Israel. That day is coming. But the, the angels tell them, they look at these guys and say, stop looking up. Stop. Stop expecting that day to happen today and start living in the meantime. Because your job is not to decide when Jesus comes back. Your job is not to decide when the world gets to return to Genesis chapter 1. You have a job, and your job, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is to be the witnesses for Jesus in the meantime. The Holy Spirit is mobilizing you and sending you out to be witnesses for Jesus in the world. Why are you looking up? Into heaven, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So then, what did the disciples do? In verse 12, they obey. They returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John. And James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These are the what we would call the, the twelve disciples minus one because Judas is now dead. Um, and so these are these are the eleven disciples, the eleven uh, apostles. And in verse uh, fourteen, all of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And his brothers, and so, so the disciples, all of the followers of Jesus, gather together in Jerusalem and they devote themselves to prayer because they are anxiously waiting the day when the Holy Spirit will come. They have listened to Jesus' instructions and they know that they are now living in the meantime, that there, there is this glorious day in the future when Jesus will come back and restore all things to the way they are supposed to be, that there is this glorious day in the future where they won't have to deal with sin or death or destruction anymore where they won't have to worry about pain and suffering and sorrow and they are ready and anxious and hoping that that day comes soon but they know that they now live in the meantime and as they live in the meantime they have a mission and a purpose and it requires the holy spirit because when the holy spirit comes upon them they will be empowered and mobilized to go reach lost people with the gospel they will be empowered and mobilized to be effective witnesses for jesus in their community and around the world So that the name of Jesus will be made known in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the the thing that the disciples came to know in that moment is what you and I need to know. Is that Jesus is coming back. But in the meantime, the Holy Spirit mobilizes us to reach people with the gospel. The Holy Spirit is mobilizing and launching and empowering us in the meantime. You and I have a mission and a purpose, and the application of the text is simple. Are we mobilizing with the gospel? Is the Holy Spirit sending us by his power into our community and around the world? Are we people that are doing the one task that God has called us to do in the meantime, and that's to make much of Jesus, to make Jesus famous in the world, to share with people the hope and the joy and the life that we have? Are we doing the one thing that we are supposed to do in the meantime? Because we can be the church all that we want. Uh, we can be the church that is fun. We can be the church that enjoys being with each other. We can be the church that is friendly and kind. We can be the church that, that, that looks like Jesus in the way that we talk to each other, in the way that we interact with each other. But if we're not reaching people with the gospel, if we're not mobilizing and carrying with us everywhere we go the, the glorious good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, then we are failing at what Jesus has called us to do in the meantime. Are we mobilizing as a people? Are we going out into our community and reaching lost people with the gospel? And I'll say, just as a, uh, in my own life, not enough. And I'll say for, for this church, the, we love one another well. We are friendly and kind, and we need to, to continue to look like the people of God in the way that we interact with each other. But we need to do the one thing that God has called us to do, and that's to take the gospel out of those doors. That is to to see people in our community come to know Jesus. That's to affect Roanoke and Trophy Club and Justin and Keller and Fort Worth and Grapevine and Southlake to affect them with the message of the gospel. To see the people around us interact with and encounter the grace of God for the very first time. The Holy Spirit is empowering us and mobilizing us to go share the gospel with people. So why aren't we doing it? Why aren't we doing the one thing that God has called us to do? Our own vision for the future, our own passion for what we can be as the church, needs to include not just what we can accomplish on our own, but this Holy Spirit-empowered work to reach lost people with the gospel. Like our vision of the future as this church needs to, needs to include the fact that we are empowered supernaturally by the Holy Spirit to go reach people with the message of Christ. To be witnesses for him in the world. If we need to go reach lost people with the gospel. If you're here this morning, and none of this makes any sense to you, and you're here this morning, and you're the the person I talked about earlier in the sermon, where you don't know the person of Jesus, you don't know the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You don't know what he did for you. You don't know the fact that he died for your sins. You've never experienced salvation in life that comes from Jesus. This morning, we're going to sing in just a few moments. And this morning, I invite you to come talk to me about what it means to follow Jesus because you are not part of the church. And you're not part of this Holy Spirit-empowered work. And so none of this will make any sense to you. None of this has any relevance to you because the first thing that needs to happen is that you need to know Jesus. And then you can become part of the church and experience the Holy Spirit's power in your life. So this morning, as we sing, I invite you to come to the front and talk to me. I'll be right here. I would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. But for the rest of us, as we sing, don't get up and sing immediately because that's just what we do take a moment and pray in your own heart and, and figure out what is, what is causing you to not mobilize. Figure out what is stopping you from reaching lost people with the gospel because you have been empowered not just by your own skill or your own talents or your own abilities, not just by the tools that you've been given, but by the Holy Spirit. The very power of God has empowered you to go reach people with the gospel, to be witnesses for Jesus in our community. So why aren't you doing that? Take a moment in your own hearts and pray that God would give you a passion for lost people. That God would give you a heart that is on fire to see people come to know Him. That God would give you everything in you would orient your entire life to see people come to know Him. And then pray for this church. That the entire church will catch fire for Jesus. Not the building, but the people. That the entire the entire church will be sold out from seeing people come to know him. And when you've taken time to pray for yourself and to pray for the church, then you can sing. With all joy, with all the excitement, as people who are on fire for the Lord, as people who are ready and hoping and willing and empowered to mobilize, to go out and reach lost people with the gospel, you can sing and celebrate together as one body. And then we will go out those doors and we will be the people that God has called us to be and we will carry with us the message of the gospel and see lives changed in our community. Let me pray for us, and we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I thank you that you have provided a way for salvation for us. I thank you that that you have provided a way for us to, to have a restored relationship with you, Father. I pray that every single person in here would know the joy of following you. That every single person in here would know the life that comes when your grace intersects our lives. So God, if there's anybody here this morning who does not know you, if there's anybody here this morning who has never placed their faith in you and followed you, I pray, God, this morning that they would come and they would experience your life for the very first time. God, I pray that we would be a church that is empowered and mobilized by the Holy Spirit, that we would be a church that is sent out into our community to have a dramatic impact for Jesus, that we would be people who carry with us the message of the gospel into every single one of our conversations, that that would influence and affect all of our relationships, that that would influence and affect everything that we do so that our workplaces and our schools and our Community and our city, our state, and the world would come to know you. It's in the precious, holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning, if you need to come, I'll be right here. we would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. In the meantime, every single one of you, take a moment and pray that the Lord would burn your hearts to the lost and that the Lord would mobilize His church.